Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Melina Rice. I'm a fifth-year PhD candidate in the Yale Astronomy Department, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study explosive transients and their local environments. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 47 gracefully aging galaxies. So today we're going to be talking about some of the oldest known objects in the universe, specifically some of the oldest known galaxies, Mm -hmm. and I'm excited to hear all about what we can learn about the universe from old objects. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. So just to start us off with a little bit of background, could one of you tell us how old the universe is and when the first galaxies and stars formed? The universe is around 13.8 billion years old, give or take a little bit. And as a brief introduction to the history of everything, initially, cosmic inflation occurred. The universe expanded very, very quickly. Then neutral hydrogen formed around 400,000 years after that. Eventually, gravity started exaggerating small-scale overdensities that pre-existed, and the first galaxies really picked up somewhere around the 200 to 400 million year mark after that. But exactly where in there they formed and actually really became dominant is uh, still an open question. And then stars formed at basically the same time then, right? You'd think that this would be a chicken and egg problem because stars are embedded in galaxies, right? So you'd think Mm -hmm. they'd they'd have occurred Mm -hmm. around the same time. But actually the first stars are thought to occur only around 100 million years after the Big Bang. So these types of stars, population three stars, actually predated the structure of galaxies, we think. So they're just free-floating stars outside of galaxies. Enormous stars, right. Right. Mm -hmm. And they would have lived really short and had pretty intense supernovae, right? Exactly. And ionize their surrounding, I mean, completely different phenomena than what we see today. Okay. It's one of the goals of upcoming missions and surveys to discover relics of these population three stars. Okay. So none of them have ever been directly detected. They're just theorized. Correct. Okay. Exactly. Very cool. So age is kind of weird in astrophysics, right? Because the very, very old universe can also in a way be thought of as the baby universe. So when we say young and old in astrophysics, how were you thinking about that when you actually picked your astrobytes? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I thought about this a lot because when we look at high redshift objects, we're really looking at things as they were really young in the early universe, though we know today those things are some of the oldest in the universe, Mm -hmm. we don't get to see that light for billions of years. So yeah, I think that's why young and old may be bad terms to use. I think astronomers tend to use high redshift when you're talking about looking back in time and maybe evolve when you're thinking about older objects that have had a chance to evolve. It's pretty (laughs) self-explanatory. So my astrobite is about a nearby old thing. And I actually went out of my way to find something in the local universe that we know to be extremely old to compare against, I'm sure, what Alex is presenting, which is actually kind of the opposite. Right, exactly. Mine studies what we know to be 
something that's a really old object today, but studying it at extremely high redshift when it was extremely young, early in its life. Okay. It'll be really cool to hear the comparison between those two. <laughs> For sure. So how did the early universe compare with the current universe? I talked about inflation and formation of neutral hydrogen. After the formation of neutral hydrogen, there needs to be something to re-ionize all of that hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Hydrogen in the universe today is predominantly ionized. Why does it need to be re-ionized? Why couldn't it just stay neutral? To match observations from what we see today. Most hydrogen is ionized today? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so you need okay. to have ionizing sources. And the epoch at which that occurs is what's termed the epoch of reionization, when most of the neutral hydrogen was ionized by strong radiation sources like stars and galaxies. And before that, like I said, hydrogen was mainly neutral. Even before that, you had this hot, opaque soup of ionized atoms. Mm -hmm. And even further back in time, you had breakdown of even atoms into constituent pieces. And this is called the quark gluon plasma. But this is a whole mess that we're not going to cover in this. So it sounds like the universe used to be really soupy, and now it's less so. <laughs> yeah, the soup has cooled. The soup has cooled off significantly. Okay, okay. Are you saying that if we put our soup in the refrigerator, it'll eventually form stars? <laughs> Let me know. It actually, the epoch of reionization you could think of as microwaving the soup again, heating it back up. Mm. <laughs> <A> good analogy. <laughs> Can studying really old objects also tell us about the future then? So we sort of try to piece this together to understand the present, right? But then what do we anticipate will happen to our galaxy and the universe more broadly in billions of years from now? This is a really great question. One of the most uncertain things in galaxy studies is how star formation turns off mm. because we see populations like the Milky Way that are blue and star forming. And we also see a lot of galaxies, typically the ellipticals, that are red and dead. They have just M stars left. They have no new star forming regions. And so we know that there has to be some evolutionary track, but we see almost nothing in the middle. So we think based on our current model, eventually there's some mechanism that shuts off star formation in a galaxy. And the more we understand about what that could be, which in the past actually might have been the epoch of reionization. It might have been some sort of feedback, which we spoke about in an old episode. There's some mechanism that removes the dust and gas from the galaxy so that it can't form new stars, or maybe something to do with mergers, in fact. Mergers could reignite a dead galaxy, or it could quench a star-forming galaxy. So I think studying old objects and studying evolved objects nearby mm -hmm are great mechanisms to better piece together the evolutionary track of galaxies. Will, do you have a sense, has the rate of mergers changed across cosmic time? Can we look back at a specific redshift and see more evidence of mergers that can better inform the galaxies that we see today? It's a great question. I think galaxy mergers are more common than we tend to think. So my understanding is a lot of old galaxies have been merged. And in fact, all of like the irregulars and maybe even some of the ellipticals come from galaxy mergers and they're not formed that way. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of evidence of mergers. And we know the Milky Way is going to merge with Andromeda in a few billion years. The odds are actually no stars will crash into each other, but it'll certainly mess things up <laughs> and could ignite star formation or could quench it. There's also, I didn't mention anything about dark matter halos. That changes the entire picture. You can maybe lose dark matter. And if that somehow happens, the galaxy doesn't have enough mass to stay together anymore. 
and then the dust could be completely lost and there's no chance for star formation. So there's a lot of unknowns, but it's an exciting field. Cool. Very cool. It's really interesting how galaxies actually collide on a pretty regular basis, but stars don't. Like they just have completely different collisional timescales based on their sizes and how often Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. get close to other similar objects. So pretty interesting. It's kind of cool that Mm -hmm. galaxies interact so much or else we wouldn't see so much diversity in their structure. Anyways, I digress. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm excited to start off with Alex's Astrobite, where we'll be hearing about one of the oldest, most high redshift of galaxies. So Alex, would you take it away? Certainly. My Astrobite is called Chasing a Starlight, Investigating One of the Oldest Known Galaxies with Muse. And it was written by Ali Crisp, based on a paper by Matthew and others, published last year. So, as some background... We're going to be talking about Lyman alpha photons. These are photons produced from the Lyman alpha series. This is the transition in hydrogen from the N equals 2 orbital shell to the ground state. And it emits an ultraviolet photon at a very specific frequency. So if you look in a spectrum of a galaxy, you can see evidence of this Lyman alpha process and see exactly how this transition occurred. What kinds of objects in the galaxies are causing those Lyman alpha photons to be emitted? Great question. It's actually the galaxies themselves that are emitting these things. So there's a type of a galaxy called a Lyman alpha emitter. And these are galaxies typically at very high redshift that contain Mm -hmm. lots of neutral hydrogen that's been excited by surrounding star formation. And that Mm -hmm. causes them to then jump to excited orbital states and then emit Lyman alpha radiation as they settle back down to the ground state. As we said in the introduction, the universe started out hot and energetic with all of the hydrogen ionized in a big opaque mess. At some point, neutral hydrogen formed, but then later on, at the epoch of reionization, the neutral medium was ionized by some really bright sources cropping up and blasting the intergalactic medium with photons. We don't really know what objects predominantly caused this ionization, so we're trying to study this epoch in as much detail as possible. Lyman alpha emitters are cool because the ultraviolet light was emitted in an environment full of neutral hydrogen. It would just be reabsorbed. They would go to the excited shells and re-emitted when they dropped down to the ground state. And then hits another atom, reabsorbed, mm-hmm. re-emitted, and this keeps bouncing around. We would never see it. It's continually bouncing around in mm-hmm. neutral hydrogen. But Lyman alpha emitters, we observe at high redshift. And so what that tells us is that they lie right on the threshold between a region of intense neutral hydrogen and a region full of ionized hydrogen through which the Lyman alpha photons can pass. So is that what we use to study the epoch of reionization then? So this means that they lie right on the threshold of the epoch of reionization, right when Mm. it starts. Yeah. Alex, this sounds really cool and I really want to get it, but I didn't (laughs) the first time. Can you just say it one more time for me, please? Sure, sure, sure. So... Lyman alpha photons are absorbed and emitted and correspond to the exact energy difference between the N equals 2 orbital level and the ground state Mm -hmm. of hydrogen. Singly ionized hydrogen will not absorb a photon of this energy, but neutral hydrogen will to get it into that excited state. And so if you see that photon, you know it was emitted from a region of neutral hydrogen, but if we're seeing it, it passed through a region of ionized Mm. hydrogen Ah. because it wasn't absorbed. We we caught it. Got it. And so it lies right at that threshold between the two distinct regions of the universe. Very cool. Thanks. So what does that actually tell us about the epoch of reionization besides perhaps where it is? Yeah, great question. 
we don't know a ton about how galaxies formed that early in the universe, and as I said, exactly what objects contributed to the reionization of all the neutral hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And so by studying the galaxies right at that threshold in as much detail as possible, we can learn about whether these were the dominant ionization sources and how galaxies evolved from that early, early epoch of the universe to today. Okay. This paper investigated an extremely bright Lyman alpha emitter at a redshift of 6.6, .6, and they nickname it Cosmos Redshift 7, or CR7. It turns out, I'm not a sports person, but this is an homage to Cristiano Ronaldo, who is number seven on Manchester United. He's a famous Portuguese soccer player. I did not know this, but oh. anyway, the authors were really big soccer fans. That's like one of the only soccer players I've ever heard of. <laughs> He's quite famous. CR7. <laughs> So Cosmos Redshift 7, CR7, this galaxy at extremely high redshift, mm -hmm. has three UV bright regions. And the authors wanted to find out what exactly is causing the UV emission in these three distinct regions. So there are just bright spots on the galaxy, you're saying? Correct, yes. Okay. Some people think that they could be population three stars in the galaxy. Some people think that they could be active galactic nuclei causing that emission. So it's not entirely clear right now at the beginning of this asteroid what's causing this UV emission. Okay, so what did they do to try to figure it out? Yeah, so to investigate <laughs> this further, the authors used the Multi-Unit Spectroscopic Explorer, or MUSE, atop the Very Large Telescope, the VLT, along with near-infrared data from both Hubble and the ESO survey UltraVista to reconstruct the morphology of the galaxy along with its spectroscopic features. Okay. And here are the major results. Number one, the Lyman Alpha emission is best categorized as a cluster of UV sources, one bright one at the center, and two distinct components offset. They were trying to determine whether this was a resolution question or whether these were actually physically distinct regions. Turns out these are three distinct spots of UV emission, they think. Different things okay. happening across the galaxy. Number two, the Lyman Alpha line that was detected is incredibly bright, and this suggests that the galaxy hosts either an active galactic nucleus doing all the surrounding ionization, or a young starburst event in some of the components where tons of massive UV-emitting stars are rapidly forming. Number three, the spectrum as a whole is in agreement in general with low-redshift galaxies that are thought to be analogs for these kinds of systems. We use low-redshift galaxies as analogs because these are so hard to find at high-redshift. But the equivalent width, this is roughly the size of the emission line in the spectrum for Lyman Alpha, is about four times larger than you see for low redshift galaxies. So this says something about the strength of the ionization in this galaxy. Can you spatially resolve where each of these features is coming from? Because if it was an active galactic nucleus, wouldn't that be like at the center of the galaxy, whereas the population of stars forming wouldn't necessarily be? Yeah, it's a really good question. You can get spatially resolved information because they were looking into the infrared emission to get a sense for the morphology of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. But whether you can do it at the spatial scales to distinguish between stars near the center of the galaxy in some starburst event versus an actual AGN at the very center, I don't think they would be able to distinguish based on resolution right. alone. Okay. Now, final piece in this is that you can get a little bit of information about the spectral energy distribution. We've talked about SEDs earlier in mm -hmm. this podcast. Mm -hmm. By taking the ratios of the intensity of light at different frequency ranges. And when they do this and compare the ratio between infrared light to UV light for this galaxy, 
they find that the ratio is inconsistent with what you should find if it's an AGN with a lot of dust around it that is reprocessing high frequency, high energy light from the AGN. Is it like two peaked where you have the primary emissions and then the secondary sort of infrared dust emissions? Exactly. You should see more infrared dust emission in the that ratio. The ratio should be tilted more toward the infrared side if it was an AGN creating most of the ionization. I see. Mm. And so this leads us to the final conclusion that CR7 at redshift of 6.6 probably has an extremely young metal-poor starburst event actively going on, causing most of the ionization. How metal-poor is it, and could these stars be candidates for population 3 stars? All of this is the topic of future work, but it's still really interesting Mm. to think about. So they can't confirm that they're population 3. Correct. What would they be if not population three? Population two or just not even known to be stars? Population two, stars. Okay. Yeah. The transition between them is kind of hazy. And how metal poor do you need to get before you're considered a population three star and not a population two star? It's unclear. Mm. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Because population three stars are the stars that formed first, right? And so they're reprocessing no metals from no supernovae that have happened before. So they should be completely pristine, completely free of other metals. But our uncertainties on the metallicity of different objects as we're able to measure them can be high enough that it's just unclear whether it would be a pop three or a pop two. Right. And one last important question, how did CR7 age gracefully? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Unfortunately, we don't get information about what it's doing right now, so we have to presume that it's aging gracefully based on how gracefully it existed at the very beginning of its life. Fair enough. It's a little stressful. It's like being judged for the rest of your life based on what you were like at the age of two. (laughs) It's positive, though. It's doing well at two, assuming it's doing well now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for bringing that astrobite. Definitely. Early universe, super interesting stuff. Mm. <laughs> so I am excited for our favorite segment, <laughs> the ultra aging space sound of the very regular space Fortnite. <laughs> the, the, the graceful one, right? <laughs> the extremely graceful space Fortnite. <laughs> of the sound, gracefully. Of the sound. <laughs> <laughs> words, many words. <laughs> so I'll play the sound and I want you to guess what you think it is. Okay. Nice. Cool. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I have many thoughts. Definitely a sonification of an image. I think the ticks represent maybe stars sweeping across an image. It sounded a lot like, in terms of the musicality of it and not the science, it sounded a lot like a, a Chandra one that I played before. So maybe Chandra x-ray data, but I exactly what it is, I couldn't tell you. Maybe a galaxy? Chandra is pretty good at creating sonifications. Yeah, that was pretty much my guess. I was going to go for a 
supernova remnant, something that's diffuse but pretty bright. And that was that large central feature with maybe foreground or background stars as each of the pips. Ooh, nice. Hmm. That's all like really, really good guesses. So this is a sonification of the region surrounding the black hole Messier 87 as studied using x-rays from the Chandra X-ray Observatory, as well as radio waves from the very large array, the VLA. So over time, the sonification is sweeping radially around the image to turn the image to sound. So we had another sonification oh, like uh-huh, that pretty uh-huh. recently that I thought was super cool. Like the clock hand. Yeah. Yeah. I like those. It's a fascinating way of doing things. It's a really cool way to hear a lot of things at once, and it's just not a way that I would have thought to sonify, mm-hmm. so it's pretty cool. So this one's starting at this 3 o'clock position and then sweeping all the way around. The frequencies are mapped to pitch, so radio data is lower pitch than x-rays, and nearby stars in the image are those short plucks that you're hearing. So this is actually the same galaxy that was imaged by the Event Horizon Telescope. So you might have heard of Messier 87 from that. Yeah. We know that there's an accretion disk of material surrounding the black hole itself. But the image sonified here is a separate data set. The Event Horizon Telescope was just looking at radio data. And this data set includes, first of all, both radio and x-ray. But it looks like it's kind of zoomed out. So the size scale is not actually noted on this image, so I wasn't able to say for sure, but it looks like it's probably a much more zoomed out version of what the Event Horizon Telescope saw. So you're seeing a lot more structure kind of farther out. It's pretty cool. It's mostly a combination of jets of energetic particles and hot gas that's surrounding the black hole. Lovely. Thanks for sharing this one. Thanks. Yeah, it's a really beautiful image, and it sounds really nice when mapped to sound. So, You don't even need to see it to appreciate it. I think the Chandra team is doing some really pioneering things in sonification right now. It's cool. I think they have a dedicated oh, yeah. team just to work on the musicality of different science images while preserving the main scientific results of them. I think that's amazing. Right. Yeah, they've done some exceptional mm-hmm. outreach. Right. They have an entire gallery of these sonifications. So I think we've played several of them on this show yeah. so far because they're very well made. So yeah, yeah. it's great to just go through and hear all the cool x-ray Absolutely. sounds out there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for bringing one of them to us, Melina. Yeah, of course. So I think it's time to move on then to Will's Astrobite and to learn more about an old galaxy that's much more nearby. So presumably you can study it in a lot more detail. So I'm excited to hear what that adds to the story. Absolutely. So the Astrobite I'm talking about today is titled Jurassic Universe, Interpreting a Fossil Galaxy from the Deep Past. The Astrobite was written by Ryan Gallant, And it's fairly new, but the paper by Anna Frebel and others was actually published in the Astrophysical Journal in 2014. And the topic of this paper is ultra-faint dwarf galaxies, which are the dimmest, smallest, and most metal-poor galaxies that we know of. And as a reminder, metals to astronomers are things heavier than helium. Mm -hmm. And we know that the universe was created by a benevolent being called Kevin, And we know that Kevin imparted the universe with only hydrogen and helium. So all of the earliest stars and galaxies formed without any metals. I think this is the least metaphysical you've been on an Astro Soundbites episode thus far. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) And so only after star fusion, supernovae, and collisions could we actually get metals. So metal poor is another way of saying super freaking old. (laughs) 
grandma isn't old. She's just extremely metal poor. <laughs> Speak for yourself. My grandparents are pretty metal. <laughs> <laughs> Studying these metal poor galaxies can be useful for many things. But in this paper, the authors actually just used one specific metal poor galaxy called Segway 1. And though Segway 1 may be the star of this paper, it's actually a galaxy. Oh. <laughs> Is that your segue into talking about stars? Exactly. No, <laughs> kind of. Um, <laughs> so Segway 1 is an ultra-faint dwarf galaxy, but it's only 23 kiloparsecs from the sun. So it's in our local universe. And it's actually so close that we can take spectroscopy of its brightest stars, which you really cannot do with anything that's not in the local universe. CR7, for example, you would never be able to study individual stars in that system. Mm. Right, exactly, yeah. And the luminosity of Segway 1 is only about 300 times the luminosity of the sun, which is a billion times fainter than the Milky Way. Wow. So you would think it's a little tiny galaxy, but it's actually kind of chunky because it has a mass-to-light ratio of about 100 times what's typical for spiral galaxies. So it could have a crazy amount of dark matter. Wow. So to clarify, Segway 1... That's a satellite of the Milky Way, right? So this isn't like a free-floating dwarf galaxy. It's orbiting the Milky Way galaxy. Yeah, you're right. It actually is a satellite of the Milky Way. Okay, cool. Forgive me if this in and of itself is a segue, but <laughs> what at these scales distinguishes an ultra-faint dwarf galaxy from a globular cluster? Actually, not as much as you would think. It's fainter than some globular clusters. Okay. So the thing is, because we can look at the spectra of the stars, we can see their rotation curves, and we know there's a ton of dark matter. We know it behaves like a galaxy. A globular cluster does not have a big chunk of dark matter. Got it. Okay. So in this study, how did the authors further investigate the stellar populations within Segway 1? They took spectroscopic data of six red giants in the Segway 1 galaxy, and they found, as we would expect, really low metallicity. So they take what's called the iron to hydrogen ratio, and they found that it's 6,000 times less than the sun. Very, very little iron. Hmm. Next, they explored something called alpha enrichment. I actually didn't know about this until I read the Astrobyte and explored this topic. So there are alpha elements, and these are the types that are produced in core collapse supernovae, so type 2 supernovae. And the examples are, say, magnesium and calcium. So not the heaviest things, but definitely metals in the astronomy sense. And normally, type 1a supernovae, that is white dwarfs that go through supernovae, they enhance the amount of iron relative to magnesium and calcium, these alpha elements. So you would expect the abundance of alpha elements goes down as the iron abundance goes up. But actually, Segway 1 did not show that trend. All of the red giants had almost the exact same proportion of alpha elements, despite having completely different amounts of iron. All metal poor, but different within that range. And yet, there wasn't the trend that was expected. Okay. This is strange. Yeah. This has not been seen before. And what they expect... What they predict this means is that there were no type 1a supernovae in Segway 1. Or, if there were type 1a supernovae, the byproducts were never incorporated into new stars, which is kind of weird. 
So this is not something that I would expect, and part of the reason for that is because if the galaxy is extremely old, white dwarfs causing thermonuclear supernovae predominantly occur in very old systems. Right. So why don't we see that? They don't know. It is really confusing. Hmm. And it's possible there were no white dwarfs, which to me doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because as you say, right, you would expect the white dwarfs to exist. I think maybe a better explanation would be that the white dwarfs did not ever go supernovae. What did the authors think happened here? Yeah, so what they're thinking is something interesting in Segway 1 shut off star formation pretty early. And then it's just been evolving, aging gracefully, if you will, uh-huh. ever since. Okay. And so what they speculate or they explore some ideas of what could shut off star formation. They say, for one, maybe its gravitational pull was too weak. So all of the gas ejected by supernovae just, just left. And it kept pushing out star-forming material. The second thought they have is maybe the reionization of the universe actually evaporated the dust cloud. So it imparted so much energy that it pushed everything out. So one way or another, it's probably due to the fact that it's really small. Mm-hmm. But it's very peculiar that these red giants don't have the trend that you would expect to see based on what we know to be the case in other dwarf galaxies. Mm-hmm. So that really remains, I think, an open question and one worth studying. Yeah, it's also, maybe this is a point for the discussion, but I think typically the reason we look at really high redshift objects and really low redshift objects is to try and reconstruct the evolutionary history of individual systems. In this case, if you see something at low redshift that's completely different from what you would expect, you have to wonder, is it just an anomalous object or some completely distinct evolutionary track Mm. that we just don't understand Mm -hmm. because we haven't found the high redshift counterpart to it? Have we seen other yeah. galaxies at this age that look quote-unquote normal? I don't think there's another example of a close-by, extremely evolved, ultra-faint dwarf galaxy. Okay. So this could be the path. This could be the path that all the galaxies mm, will take. Mm. That's right. We would just have to figure that out, whether yeah. it's an anomaly or not. They call it Segway 1. There's no Segway 2. <laughs> You know, well, this paper now is going on eight years old, so it certainly is possible that things have improved in the last eight years. Very cool. I mean, I assume if the Astrobite was written more recently, that means it's probably still an outstanding mystery, so it's pretty cool that it's been a remaining puzzle over the years. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it's a, I mean, it's so cool that we can spectroscopically view individual stars in a galaxy like this. I mean, it's a really really neat galaxy based on the fact that it's so dim so nearby so highly evolved what a great object of study it's pretty lucky that it's this close yeah and i feel like the narrative arc for so many of our discussions are here's what it is here's what they found here's the end result tying everything together but i kind of like that this one ends on just kind of a question mark Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. it's this weird thing and maybe someday we'll understand better what it is those are the really fun parts of Astro, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, huh, seems pretty weird. Guess we'll figure Absolutely. it out later. <laughs> this one seems pretty weird. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think that takes us to our one-sentence summaries. And I'm actually pretty eager to hear Will's. So could you start us off? Sure. Segway 1 stopped forming stars 13 billion years ago, but managed to hardly age in that time. 
giving us clues about the nature of the early universe. Oh, great skincare treatment routine. (laughs) (laughs) Just remove dust. (laughs) Alex, what's your summary? Lyman Alpha emitters all like to hang out in the back of the astrophysical bus, and it's their ability to probe the epoch of reionization that makes them so hip. <laughs> I don't, I don't get it. Back of the bus? Oh, because like the cool kids. All the cool kids sat in the back of the bus. No, you never experienced. Never went to public school. I didn't. I wasn't a back of the bus kind of guy. I was never cool enough for the back of the bus. I think I sat. Should at I the front. rewrite it? Did y'all not get the reference. I was the kid who sat at the front and talked to the bus driver. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Nothing. What kind of mileage would you get this. on this, baby? <laughs> How fast do you think we get to push this? <laughs> do you take the bus home with you, or does it go back to the school? <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> So we talked about both very, very old, as in high redshift galaxies, and very old, Mm -hmm. as in nearby, but aged galaxies. Would we prefer to see more high redshift objects or more local universe evolved objects as sort of a probe of galaxy evolution? Which one do you think would teach us more? Ooh, that's a tough one. Alex, do you have any thoughts on this? (laughs) Yeah, my initial thought is that the extremely high redshift objects are harder to discover and we get less information about them. And in that sense, even just one data point in extremely low resolution, the limited information we have, would help us construct a narrative, piece together the timeline of evolutionary history of an object. Having said that, the fact that it's so low resolution means that you don't have a ton of explanatory power within the data set that you collect. And in contrast, low redshift, like you said, will doing a spectroscopic analysis of individual stars. I mean, you would never be able to do that with high redshift objects. And so Mm -hmm. the analysis that that permits is so much more detailed. That's kind of a punch on your question as to which would be better. (laughs) I think they're very different. I think that maybe I'll say the high redshift objects teach us more about the field and galaxy evolution as a whole. And the low redshift objects are more useful for teaching us about individual instances of a particular evolutionary path that's a really great thought i think in both cases our comparison point is the local universe galaxies that are not evolved right either star forming or quenched but not super ancient which makes a better comparison to those and in some ways i think the local universe evolved galaxy is a better comparison because it's in the same environment and we can use similar tools to do the comparison where it's really hard as you say to get good data for high redshift objects. I mean, we're pushing the bounds of what is physically possible. But that's also how great discoveries are made. And I think there's also a lot of high redshift galaxies, and there are very few low redshift evolved galaxies. So in that sense, you can maybe make up for the individual spectroscopy that you can do on stars in local galaxies by just getting a lot of these high redshift galaxies, as many as we can, and piecing it together that way. That's interesting. I don't know. If I had to pick one, I think the local evolved galaxies would probably be what I lean to because the ability to get spectra of individual stars and learn something about the environments of those is probably a little bit easier and more fruitful. But I think we have to do both and maybe in the middle too, right? It's fascinating because I would say the opposite. If I had to immediately pick one, I would say the high redshift one because... 
harder to discover, more interesting because we know less about that region of our history than the local universe. True to our astrobites. What about you, Melina? I almost kind of want to say the local universe, but I mean... So I think that's mostly because Segway 1, it sounds like that's the only galaxy that has been discovered in that parameter space. And what that basically means is there might be nothing else that even exists in that parameter space that we would be able to observe with that kind of detail. And so, I mean, this is like a wishful thinking sort of thing, but it's physically impossible to actually get more data sets that are that good. So it would be it feels more valuable because it's more out of reach, perhaps. Whereas if we improve our technology, maybe we'd be able to observe more of these high redshift objects. Whereas you can't just force more like very high resolution dwarf galaxies that are really nearby to show up. Like there are only as many as the galaxy (laughs) formed, you know? (laughs) That's true. That is very true. Yeah. So if I had to magically pick to have data about one of them, then I'd pick the one that I think realistically we wouldn't be able to progress that much with in the next hundred years which i think would be maybe actually the local universe that's a really great point so you're saying that if the low observational rate of something is intrinsic rather than a reflection of our observational biases then that's the thing you would want to study in detail yes (laughs) cool that's super cool it's a good answer (laughs) yeah Also, so both of these galaxies were, again, different snapshots of maybe sort of similar processes, maybe maybe similar ends of the same evolutionary pathway. Mm -hmm. So what do we learn by combining our understanding of the extremely high redshift in the local universe? What do we gain from that? And how can we tell if it's the same pathway or if they're completely different? That's the question. Yeah, Yeah. that is tough. I mean, it's pretty obvious that... Segway 1 is exceptionally small. Mm -hmm. I don't think CR7 is nearly as small. I think it's much, much larger. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. So they're not the exact same pathway. Mm -hmm. Dwarf galaxies are kind of a separate category even, Right. right? But in general, having an object at low redshift and an object in high redshift and connecting them, assuming the same evolutionary pathway, is an intuitive leap that Mm -hmm. sometimes astronomers make and maybe... It's a valid one, and maybe it's not. In the CR7 paper, for example, they compared the spectroscopic properties of CR7 to what they believe to be reasonable low-redshift analogs for similar galaxies. That's a huge assumption, right? Whether you think the objects at low-redshift are reasonable points of comparison to CR7 already says something about what we think CR7 to be. Interesting, yeah. So it's like our predispositions are going to alter (laughs) the way that we interpret our data i think that's always true right but i wonder is there any other way to do it i mean just by the fundamentally limited notion that we can never watch a galaxy evolve from high redshift to low redshift you're always going to have to piece together snapshots and hopefully just get better at making those intuitive leaps i would argue that you can do that if you just have a physics-based simulation where you start in one spot and then you just see what happens i mean There will always be some simplifications in those models, but Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can, in effect, see what happens to it over time. But again, I mean, if Segway 1 represents a really strange edge case of a situation that might never occur in a cosmological simulation that you run, how else would you be able to study the evolutionary history other than looking directly at the observed data? Well, that's true. 
the best simulation that I'm aware of is made by the Illustrious Collaboration, and they've worked really hard over the years to get things as accurate as they can match observational parameters. So I don't know that it's out of the question that Segway 1 or these ultra faint dwarf galaxies wouldn't form. I think they might actually form, but it's it's the fact that it's an edge case that makes it something that we could study because if it weren't a dwarf galaxy, it probably wouldn't be close to the Milky Way like this. And it probably wouldn't have had its star formation suddenly quenched after one round of forming stars due to some external forces because it would have had enough gravity to hold on to the material. So it is, in fact, it's a weirdness that makes it something that we can study. Hmm. Yeah, that's fair. We're, we probably end up seeing a lot of edge cases in astronomy just because of them often being the easiest ones to observe for whatever reason. Yeah. That's not a bad thing. You can construct the whole picture if you have the edge. Well, it's a start anyways. <laughs> That's how you start the puzzle. Oh, I did a puzzle recently that was flowers, and the entire edge was black pieces. That's awful. All pitch black. That's disrespectful. <laughs> I don't know why they would do that. That's like level four puzzling right there. That's yeah. How many levels are there? Oh, it easily goes up above seven. So I actually <laughs> did the edge pieces last. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. It was a really weird experience. I was having like an existential crisis. Like I don't even know myself anymore. <laughs> My entire model of the universe has changed. <laughs> I knew somebody who used to do puzzles by flipping all pieces over and just doing them by shape alone with no color information. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't me, I swear. Why I don't know. Why would you I... do that? I don't know how some people are better at recognizing shapes than colors. I, you'd think you'd get information from both, but <laughs> it might make it more challenging. Some of the fun of the puzzle is just having it take a really long time and like sitting there. This is a total tangent. Really? I thought it was pretty on topic, you know, until you warned <laughs> me. I thought we were still on dwarf galaxies. You don't see the highlighted discussion question, how do you do your puzzles? <laughs> All right. That concludes episode 47, Gracefully Aging Galaxies. Gag. Gag. <laughs> Sorry. Gag. <laughs> like the rest of the universe, we too are getting older gracefully, and you can find all of our grace-filled episodes in various places across the wild, wild web. The wild, wild web? <laughs> is, this, is this another example of Malena getting a fundamental idiomatic expression wrong? <laughs> so... Find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, and Audible. Wants to read the Astrobytes that we talked about today? They are linked in the show notes. Or you can just explore all of the many wonderful Astrobytes out there on astrobytes.org. So thank you all for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. There's a line for you right here. Wait, we're already there? Uh-oh. <laughs> the rest is in the intro questions. <laughs> I did all the other parts. <laughs> <laughs>